0: Don't be a dick. Just be a nice person to these folks and understand that you're part of that community and that you have a responsibility to them. And so the only thing you can do to get them to be on board is give them a hug. You got to take them in. You got to look after them, treat them like family and and say, you're skipper of the ship.
1: Hello, I'm Robert Tame and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. guest today is Brandon Stevens. Brandon is the founder of Tortilla Mexican Grill that recently floated on London's alternative investment market. He's also an advisory partner at private equity fund Trispan. Brandon's a native Californian and began his career in Silicon Valley where he worked for several technology startups. In the podcast, Brandon explains... How he brought the values he learnt in Silicon Valley into the UK hospitality business and how leading with compassion has helped keep staff turnover low at Tortilla. Brandon talks about the UK burrito wars during which he worked for 500 days straight and with a defining act of self-compassion, he hired himself a managing director to run the business. As you'll hear, Brandon is sharp, smart, has a great sense of humor and he's been really generous in his support of working for compassion. Enjoy the
0: podcast. Brandon. Good to see you, Robert. We first yeah. met we first met umteen years ago. It had to be it's it's been at least 12 years. Is that right? I, I don't know. I remember
1: meeting outside of the restaurant I was running at the time, I think, and we, we were talking about your soon-to-be-launched. Empire. So yeah, maybe 12 years ago. Was so that
0: that was pre the first tortilla site. So that was that would have been like 2006-2007. Wow. We were young. Wow. <laughs> we were we, we were young. <laughs> we were still
1: feel, still feeling young. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me and just to get us started, I wonder whether you could tell our listeners, Brandon, maybe a project that you're currently focused on.
0: Yeah, so I'm working on a project that I've been kind of um, working on for the last two years, which is to take larger square foot locations and put a range of different leading consumer experiences in them. So we kind of almost phrase it as a department store of experiences. And everything that's kind of gone on with COVID has moved quite a bit of that forward with respect to well-being, uh, working outside of the office, uh, people's desire for experiences, and the property side of things has kind of caught up with all that. And so myself and, and a number of other advisors and folks, business colleagues and operating partners have all kind of come together to to try to do that. And we have some good prospective locations we're looking at. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Right. So the early stage then. Very early stage, pre first sight, all the challenges of covenants and you know, what is this? And we've never seen this before and what's the yield and all those kind of things. So it's it's very interesting. Okay. And how would you describe the quality of your work life at the moment? Right now, it's pretty good. There's a, but it's full on. I mean, we, I have a little uh, daughter who's the absolute cherished, you know, just darling uh, girl of my life, and so I get to see her quite a bit because we're working from home. I do have meetings. We also do have a uh, a nanny in the afternoon who who's able to collect her, and so. We've got a good balance, but it is full on, you know, and, and and we got to make that time for your family, but yeah, I feel okay with it. It's not too bad. I I Um, also, I'm not, because I'm not running anything, you know, as a CEO, that that's where it really becomes challenging. As you know, that, you know, when you're the net and, and everything falls through and then, and you've got to grab it. That's where the stress happens. And that's where the time element really gets stretched. So you know, I've got a lot of flexibility with my schedule, and that 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 allows us to accommodate. Great, it sounds like you've got some good balance there.
1: So, as you know, this podcast is focusing on compassion and well-being and mindfulness, and and how we can take that into the workplace. And what's your
0: understanding of the word compassion? To me, compassion is. Understanding another person's perspective and being able to not just relate but have empathy and you know concern for for their particular situation and particular circumstance if those happen to be negative, but also an understanding if they are positive as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's that, that's that's broadly right. <clears throat> you know, it's a very shorthand way of saying compassion is empathy plus action. So you notice that somebody is suffering. You're aware of that. You embody that suffering, but actually, you want to change that situation and bring some action to it. So you want to try and alleviate that suffering. So that's the key difference between
0: empathy and compassion. It's it's empathy plus action. Would you um, would you say though that, that compassion can also? I mean, when you say yeah. suffering, I think of compassion there's there's obviously compassion required in very dire circumstances. those come up fairly rarely you know I mean you got to deal with them, but they're not every day and, and quite frankly you know when those kind of things come up somebody's parents have passed away somebody's kids are sick to not have compassion in those circumstances means that you're a jerk you know that, that's that's not that that doesn't take a big leap of kind of mm-hmm psychological fortitude on the behalf of the of the manager but i think it's the everyday compassion it's understanding that you know they don't need we people don't want to be working 12 hours a day every day in in and out they don't want a a split shift they don't want you know they they need a little bit uh pat on the back from time to time they need tough love sometimes but but also but not not in a in, in an aggressive way that you know ruins their month right and 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 puts them down so compassion i think is can also be not, at a at a lower level of suffering or or negativity
1: yeah i i think you've highlighted the word suffering which i think some people do struggle with it it feels quite extreme and i'd agree with you there are varying levels and using you know common humanity again it sounds a bit grand but that's just dealing with people as human beings and and being respectful of them and not wanting them to work 12 hours a day because that's just not sustainable you know that's just being a decent employer or, or whatever else and and also having that kindness again kindness is a it may come across as a fluffy word but it's a it's a really important thing to be kind to each other we're human beings and that's how, we're, that's how we're programmed. Common to, sense to. isn't
0: that common. And just general kindness, quite frankly, isn't that common either. You know, and it, it kind of stuns me from time to time how how that's just not kind of presence in the workspace, where it is in, in people's personal lives, and then they just almost leave it at the door. It's like, oh, I've crossed the threshold. It's a, a totally different set of rules. And increasingly with millennials and with this convergence that's going on between personal lives and corporate lives, that is an outdated Such an it was always outdated and it's more outdated, you know, it's going to be increasingly outdated.
1: I'd 100% agree. I'm I'm playing this in my mind, and I think the pandemic has had like quite an effect that we're talking to each other from people's homes, we're seeing their children walk through the room, or their dog, or their cat. We're seeing, oh, they've got quite a lot on their bookshelf, or I quite like that picture. So we're kind of moving from this person that came to work, we're now seeing more. Of their lives, and are, are we seeing more of their true selves? And I'm really quizzical about how we change that, how we encourage people not to wear these masks, how they bring their true selves to work. So, how, how can we break those barriers down, Brandon? How, how you? How for you as a person that's running companies, how can you encourage people
0: to move? to this position so the only way that people start to if you if you kind of back up and say well what's the goal here well we want people to enjoy their time at work we want them to be happy The, the only way for them to do that is to have trust that they can communicate and that they'll be heard that the policies will be positive and so forth and so how is that trust then established and that trust has to come from management being open to those that feedback and creating this culture and an environment that allows them to feel relaxed and feel kind of at home. And we, so we've been, we have all been watching this for decades. You, I mean, if you just look at look at things just as simple as fashion trends, it's wild what's happened. People have gone from suits. Suits are, are gone. People are wearing T-shirts. And that relaxedness allows people to kind of, you know, chill out and be a little bit more open and a little bit more themselves. Now, the challenge is, my, I have a very good friend named Amanda who was about to, just before the pandemic, she was about to write a book called Unprofessional. And the idea is to be, is not to always have this professional uh, mask on, but to, to actually be slightly unprofessional, to be a little bit more yourselves. And create if, if you're more yourself, and if you're more open and you, and you come across without formality, people will open up to you and you can have a, a dialogue and a communication. And that's where the exchange of ideas happens. So I think it's very much, you know, management- Leading with that little bit of that unprofessional. Now the challenge is that there's a trade-off with that, and and I've I've you know I've run a technology business where I we had mostly 27 and 28 year olds, and with all due respect to my former employees, they there were some that really see it. uh, They've gone, they take it too far, and they think that they actually you know not only should there be compassion, but actually this business is for them. It's about them. It's it's not about balancing between the customers, the investors, and the employees. It's about them. And, and so it, it can, and that's where sadly, you know, when that happens, then suddenly you have to pull back on, on, on that compassion, right? So that's very interesting. How did you manage that situation then, Brandon? Just had to sit them down and, and explain. I, I think if you have some younger employees that they, especially those that aren't kind of customer facing, they won't have a view. They see themselves as a cog in the wheel, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're focused on their day to day and, and they are trying to make ends meet and, and so forth. Although in this case, we're talking about software engineers who make a lot of money for, for the age that they're at. They're doing just fine, but they don't see the customer side of things. They don't see the investor side of things. They don't understand why this isn't a nonprofit, you know? And so you have to exchange, explain that if you have this triangle, and this Richard Morris has this from who I hired in as managing director of tortilla, he has this great. Um, slightly does with the triangle, of the customer, the investors, and the employees. And if it gets too out of whack, then it's misshapen and it's kind of, it's not balanced. You have to have that kind of balance. And so trying to be as open and transparent, quite frankly, about where we are with our fundraising, with our cash flow, with our, and bring them along for that journey, which gets them to st- not only is, is good because it it kind of, it anticipates issues and, and kind of addresses them before they even become issues. Because they realize like, oh gosh, you know we got to buckle down, we got a fundraising coming in, we got this, we got that, but also gets them to open up because they they kind of they they understand a bit more okay, what's EBITDA right you know they learn about that like, oh, I have an idea, and then you create this culture that's quite open and no there's no no bad ideas right and, and so that's I, I that was my that was my take was trying to be very and, and I tend to I find business kind of you know sh, it, it, it leans towards non-transparency by default where i kind of lean towards transparency by default unless there's a good reason and i'm on a board where i think they're all a little closed and i'm like no let's just tell them (laughs) i I think that's really
1: something that i've learned as well brandon that and and i think the key word that i I tapped into is that transparency and and, and that naturally you're trusting people aren't you? you you're actually giving them Well, you're coaching them in a way, you're helping them learn, but you're also being transparent. And I I like the sound of that triangle. And when you explain it to people and they see that point of view, then they're more educated, you've communicated, and hopefully you can move forward. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Can I just take you back, and, and I really get your view on compassion and pretty evangelical about that. What do you think holds companies back from bringing compassion into the workplace in in 2021 and beyond? what are those things that hold companies back?
0: I think it depends on what the type of company is and so are we talking about a company or are we talking about like a CEO right with with some of I think with some CEOs quite frankly it's it's just laziness you know they, it's extra work to be transparent, to over communicate, it's extra work to have to listen to people's challenges and problems and, and want to empathize. You know, there's some who are just like, I don't care, tell it to somebody else, you know, I mean, I need you to just do what you're told. And that's what people do. Because sometimes it's because they've, they're already, you know, the, the, the cup run over in a bad way, and they're stressed, and they, they're trying to deal with lots of different issues, and they just don't have the time. But then, you know, they should be hiring a, an HR person or something and sometimes it's because they just they just kind of lock, lack that passion and they're just focused they're laser focused on let's say results but not realizing that there's a long-term impact for the culture that they're setting up and, and i won't obviously name names but there's you know i know a number of restaurant chains that that are kind of run that way i think with the big corporates though it just becomes self-perpetuating you know and, and they realize that they don't have to be that nice if you look at Arcadia Group, and we can now talk about it, because he's, because Phillips now, Philip, you know, Sir Philip Green is now no longer with that company. You had a dual problem there. A, you, you, you had a, a fairly, I, was, I ran his e-commerce division for 14 months as I was getting Tortilla up and running. He's a fairly abusive manager and and also that company doesn't need to be compassionate because everybody wants to work at Arcadia in order to get that stamp of approval on their CV so that they go off and do other things. What's a shame for him is if he had if he you know if he was a nicer guy, maybe people would want to stay with him for a longer period of time and instead of just getting the credentials and then moving on, which you see in the banks, the consulting firms, you know, they all go for their 2-year thing, they get milked and then they go and get their MBA and then they go do something else, right? So I, it just it just seems like that's fairly historical and there's 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 not much you can do there. OK, but we
1: hope and that it will change. And as the younger people come through and they're recruiting younger people, maybe the change has got to come from those
0: people either rejecting that or or, or not. Exactly. If 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 other options are out there with more progressive firms, then they'll they'll just walk and they'll go to those yeah. firms. Right
1: your perception of compassion in the workplace and its relevance do you see compassion being a relevant factor to bring into business and into companies clearly
0: yes but and and it's not just kind of well it's good to have compassion i mean if you if you don't have compassion you're never going to have trust and you're never going to have loyalty you know you can there's, there's a lot of folks who take the approach that they're just going to, you know, these are hired guns. And this is an old school approach. And you see it with a different generation where it's a top-down, you know, kind of command and control. You're lucky to have this job. You're going to do what I tell you. And, you know, if you don't like it, we'll get somebody else in. And that can work. But A, if your goal is that you want to show up every day, and enjoy what you're doing (laughs) as a as a manager it's not going to be much fun when you're just kind of doing command and control and you can't have that interpersonal relationship with people on a slightly different level now some people don't want to have that relationship they want to just have that guard it's like i'll reserve my friendships and my compassion and whatever for my friends for my family but personally i you know i want to show up every day and feel proud that the people around are there because they want to be there not because they have to be there they can't get a different job or whatever and so that you kind of, you have to have that compassion. You have to have that empathy in order to get people to voluntarily want to stay and, and want to have a good time and, 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 want to be part of that culture. And if you do that, then you're going to have all the benefits of people being passionate about the work, people being, it being a great environment to, to kind of be in uh, lower reten- lower staff turnover. And that just makes for a more pleasant environment. Great. Well, I'd really
1: like to hear any stories that you have had when maybe you received compassion at work and the kind of impact it had
0: on you. I suppose, you know, one example of compassion, um, and and it's tough because I haven't seen a whole lot of compassion. I've I've worked in some very heavy duty startups and I've worked in some big companies and they're all, you know, they're, they're hard moving, fast moving Silicon Valley Businesses and there was large monolithic Bank of America's and Accenture's and things like that. But there I did find, you know, at a certain point in in the early the late 1990s and early 2000s, when things were starting to really ramp, or I'd been going for several years working in various startups, working really tough hours in grueling circumstances with a lot of uncertainty in the businesses and and quite a bit of friction in these organizations, where I just hit a wall and I just needed a break. And I went to my boss, a gentleman named Paul Gormley, great guy, former uh, McKinsey partner who had left to join a company called Webvan, which is the Okado of, of the U.S. back in the day, now at Google, and just said to him, I'm just burnt out. I just can't, I can't do it. And, and I need some time off. And he gave me a six-week sabbatical. And I went to the East Coast and met up with some friends and we drove across to the West Coast and... You know, just took some time for myself, completely away at a time where there, was, there were no mobile phones. I think we're still using pagers or something like that. So, you know, it was quite therapeutic. And I've always been really appreciative of, of him. But he was, you know, he's a fantastic manager. Well,
1: that's That sounds like a very, you know, worthwhile act for you. And if you've not been on the receiving end of Compassion, is there any... Stories you've got where you have a- been able to show compassion in, in your business amongst your colleagues—is there any examples you could share with us?
0: Yeah, 100. percent I mean, there's been, you know, one that comes to mind, and it's almost something I, 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 I shouldn't even be admitting to, but yeah, you know, I've, I've actually had times where some employees have come to me, they've said, "I've got a real problem with my financials. What can I do? You know, I, I, I can't make rent," and this is with kind of employees I was, you know, I was quite close to. There was a, there was a guy that um, came over from Venezuela and he was just such a hard worker and such a nice guy. And he wasn't trying to take advantage of it. And I definitely couldn't put anything through the company. And so I gave him a loan, you know, just to, just to kind of help him out. That's something you can't really do, you know, s- systemically. That can't be something you do as a policy. And actually it's probably incredibly frowned upon. But I just had to do it. You know, I, I wanted to look after this guy. But then there's, you know, there's been, there's been a number of times where compassionate leave, you know, we, we, was something that we had to, we put in place because a range of different situations came up from, you know, siblings passing away, parents um, being sick, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that, that's something that we've always been very good about. I, and, and, you know, I, I guess the thing I'd say is the, the biggest step that I took probably to address compassion was actually, we had a, an assistant manager named Liz Ramirez, who was absolutely one of the world's great people, who had previously been an HR manager for like a 2,000 person factory in Mexico. And she, she didn't really want to be a general manager. She didn't want all that responsibility on her. But she, because she had done this HR, work, it was really, she was a really interesting candidate when we were looking at HR. And I, I brought out an HR person really, really early because I wanted to address corporate culture, make sure that we were um, listening to people, make sure we were communicating and all the things that we've, we've talked about. And so I brought her in at, I think, store like four. <laughs> I'm not even sure we have an HR manager now. now. Now it's kind of done by the general general managers, but we brought that, we brought her in. And, you know, that was one of the best moves I made because it gave when employees couldn't have couldn't speak with their managers and they needed somebody to speak with and i wasn't kind of available to 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 be able to address all those things they went to liz and she was just the best listener ever and would give them a nice coaching and steering and you know and just listen to them so it felt like an objective place to go a safe place to go safe place to go and and from somebody who wasn't just coming in as a outside you know hr professional but somebody who had actually been there she she'd worked she'd served rice and beans you know she understood what it what it meant to be in those stores and serving hundreds of meals at, over lunchtime
1: by you you know making those acts of compassion looking out for people what what do you think impact that had on those people and the impact it had on the business
0: if you want to put it in a kpi i think we had lower um staff turnover you know we, we had from the the team that i had as a management team we actually from the time that I started until I hired in Richard and handed over, i don't think i lost i don't think I lost a single head office employee, not one over seven years and you know we built it up and built it up but I don't believe we lost i think maybe we lost one finance person but it was it was very stable and and it's because we created a, a well I, that I tried to create a family environment you know and, and we, that's an overused term, but try to get create an environment where we went out and got some beers where anybody could um, chat. I didn't have like a separate office or anything like that. It's open plan. And we did it as a, as a crew and an and excess of communication and all those various things. Right. And that trickled down, if you will, don't want to kind of make it too hierarchical, but it is to a degree, you know, to the general managers and so forth, we gave them a stipend for entertainment so that they could choose their own entertainment and do their own thing at, um, each year. And, and just generally and, and and through, quite frankly, a lot of crazy parties, you know, which at the beginning, especially when you're doing something in a startup, you know, when you when you start a, a business and Robert, I'm sure you can relate to this, the first store that there's that brand doesn't stand for anything. You know, the, the, it doesn't look good on a CV. Who is this guy? He's, I mean, there's there's no reason for them to join you in, as a, compared to a, a, a Pret or a Nando's or an established business. Right. And so the only thing you can do to get them to really be on board is. You gotta give them a hug. You gotta, you know, take them in. You gotta look after them. You gotta treat them like family, you know, and, and kind of say you're you're the kind of skipper of the ship, you know, a, a, and helping them out and coaching them. And so that was my that that's that that kind of that approach. Uh, I was almost forced into from from day one, and then it just kind of carried forward. At a certain yeah. point, though, you get very close to your staff, you know, not too close, but you get close to your staff, and and you and it's then hard to then transition to that kind of larger corporate role where you do need to be a bit more strict, a bit more policy-driven, et cetera. And it was at that point that I I felt like I needed to bring in Richard because I, in in some cases I felt like I was kind of too close to some of my team. Okay, so that that, that was your
1: solution. I think it's interesting for me listening to you, Brandon, that you've worked in lots of companies which weren't really modeling Compassion, but you seamlessly went in and set Tortilla up and it sounds like you playing all the compassion cards and creating a great culture. And as you said, your KPI was the, the low, low staff turnover. And we know the cost of constantly recruiting people and and the, the impact that can have. So how do you think you imagined that compassion?
0: Where did that come from? I've, I've given that some thought over the years. And what I, my conclusion is that without wanting to talk it down and and use negative connotations, you know, the rest the hospitality industry is quite a, is a bit of a blue collar industry. And I grew up in Silicon Valley. I literally grew up there and then also started my career there, which is very white collar and where there's a lot of trust in the employees and everybody's very autonomous. And there, there is quite a bit of transparency and that kind of instilled in those, that behavior And I almost didn't have another context to apply it to when I got into hospitality. I didn't, there there was no, I I didn't have a hospitality context to be like, Oh, that's how that's done. Oh, it's a bit more command and control. So I just naturally kind of gravitated to it. And and probably if I'm honest, probably a bit too much, you know, where, you know, some staff were stealing some money and things like that. But, but it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd certainly take the negatives of the over Transpa- excess transparency, over transparency, over trust. Given the, the the limited amount of downside that that came with it, mm. so I'd, I'd love to say that I was, you know, innovative, but I think it was just force of habit, quite frankly.
1: Well, I, I think that that's an interesting insight, and your story is similar to mine. I didn't start my career in the hospitality business, and 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 I worked in maybe more of a white collar kind of business, more creative business that that. Yeah, I didn't know anything different, so I brought that kind of style, that kind of uh, background to something else, and, and probably, hopefully, I'd like to think that I instilled, you know, some of the values of, of kindness and compassion amongst my employees as well. Okay, just just want to move on, and before I do that, generically, what I know, suffering is maybe a word that that feels a bit strong, but. Where, where would you see the suffering, the main suffering in the hospitality business amongst
0: people? The main suffering that I saw was, it's it just seems absolutely impossible to live in London on the wages that are provided. That's it. I, I mean, we had a, I mean, this is a kind of fun story, but this story isn't always fun. There was a a whole crew of, there's actually there were a couple of Mexican students that came over and and were in London in 2008 when we launched our our second site at Bankside, and they then had a bunch of housemates that were also Mexican, and before you knew it, the entire household was working at this Bankside location. They were so much fun, and and but it was it was crazy. I mean, they were just partying all night, showing up the next day fairly hungover, but cranking through you know, assembly line customers and everything. They set the record actually uh, one day, 208 um, meals in, in, in an hour over a lunch. And it's never been broken since 2008, which is insane. And they were, and I became, yeah, there's only two stores. I was very close with these guys and they always wanted me to come over and, which I did not take them up on, you know, stay up late drinking tequila and stuff like that. But they had to live in those, those places because they couldn't have their own place. They couldn't have their, they couldn't have their sanctity. They couldn't have their 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 kind of you know downtime. And so, you know, you think about people taking the tube to work. It's like that's an hour. That's an hour's wage. It's just insane. And so, I, th- I think it's you know that that makes it very difficult to I, I, if there's suffering. I, I think there's again there's acute suffering, and then there's just the everyday stuff. And that and to me. That is an everyday real challenge. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really
1: yeah, well-identified point. Thinking about your career a little bit more, you know, what have been the real significant twists and turns that that you've faced and, and how have you managed those? Thinking about your well-being and your progression, how have you managed all those twists and turns to get where you
0: are today? Beer? <laughs> I mean, th- the most challenging period I've ever been through in my career was by 2013, with the burrito wars, you know, well underway, this, in my small world of fast, casual Mexican, and, and not having a business partner and, and having spent three years developing the concept until we launched it, and then six years, you know, building it up and expanding and, tr- and trying to learn this industry. Not even, you know, having no experience, no idea what I was doing that I, I, I was very burnt out. And so that in, in terms of looking after my well-being, I was I was not looking after my well-being at all because it felt at the time like it was it was, you know, it was make it work or or go home. You know, I mean, it was it, it was just everything. Failure, you know, people talk about failure is not an option. They throw it out there. And it's like, for me, it was like, there is no way this is going to fail. There's too much at stake. My whole life felt like it would fall apart if that happened. And so I put everything into it and I I probably didn't give as, I definitely did not give as much time to my, to my wife. I definitely did not give enough time to kind of anything aside from the business. I worked at one point, I remember clocking that I had worked 500 straight days you know, including weekends and everything. And so it was at that time that I just said, right, I need to hire a managing director. I need to, I need to free myself up. I'm kind of too close to my team. All the compassion that I've shown (laughs) is now coming back to make it harder for me to kind of direct and to, you know, to get them to be as accountable as I probably needed to be. I put myself, as my wife said, I I put myself and then, you know, managed to get a, managing director on board and then at one point i remember like waking up one day and looking over my wife and being like oh my god i can't believe you're still here like (laughs) wow you know i love you so much
1: (laughs) that's, that's great and was there anybody that that time it sounds like you were really in it was there anybody you could
0: think through some of the big decisions with at the time yeah, I mean, there was there's a range of different people that I, I kind of spoke with, but that one, you know, over the years and so forth. And, uh, you know, before my 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 father, unfortunately, passed away just as we were about to launch Tortilla. And he was so instrumental in helping me get, you know, to that stage. It was it was a very funny quote. I, I don't know if I have mentioned this quote, but Mark Twain said, uh, when you're when you're when I was 14, my, my father, my father knew nothing. And I, you know, so forth and so on. When I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in seven years. And it was a bit of a case of that. I mean, I was, he, my dad was always on a pedestal. But when he was, he, because he was an entrepreneur, he helped me get to a point of launching the business. But from then on, it, it was, you know, there, was, there was a professor from London Business School who was my advisor. And whenever I really, really had a problem, once a year, I'd call him and say, I've got this kind of crazy situation. And he would just distill it down and be like, here's your course of actions, very clear. And so there were, there were people like him, Professor Bates, Professor John Bates, who were very instrumental in helping me through, you know, some of those. But I I, probably, I didn't have as, as close a mentor as I, I wish I had had at that time. I, I, there, there's definitely times where you feel, you know, pretty alone.
1: And what would you say if the, there was one thing, what's been your most important lesson to date in business? Ooh.
0: Goodness, I'll have to think about that for a bit. I'll have, to, I'll have to give that some thought.
1: Okay. Just thinking more about compassion, have you noticed any leaders that you think, yeah, that guy has got it down or maybe you don't even know them or you've read something about that company and you, you've admired you know, somehow how they're working, their culture, their company or how they're leading? Are, are there any people that you've come across?
0: About 10. So Will from Hawksmoor, you know, takes an almost ethereal view of his business. Actually, the guys from Deshoom do as well. They're, they're not in a, they want the offering to be perfect, but they want that corporate culture to be there. They they want it to be more, it's, it's not a restaurant chain to them. You know, it's, it's like, it's not even, it's not a lifestyle brand. It's like a, it's an entity beyond all that. It's, I'm not even sure how it'd be interesting how they would kind of characterize it. Um, they just feel very, it, it from the outside. It seems like they're very not under pressure and able to just kind of grow at a pace that makes sense. And with a, and with a culture that they can be immensely, immeasurably proud of every day. And they do some unbelievable things with, you know, with, with charities and so forth. But also, if I'm gonna single out one person, it's probably Joe Fleet because Joe grew Zizi, you know, to 300 stores. And re- and whenever, whenever we're we're out and about, uh, and we've been on a number of trips together and and so forth, you know, her passion for talking about people, I mean, it, to her, everything just comes if you look after the people. That she starts with the people. It just starts and ends there, and the rest of it will just, it'll all be okay, and and and. I don't want to say she's she's kind of non-multidimensional from that standpoint, but it is it's it's that, and then kind of everything is a, is a second secondary or tertiary. She's a you know a genuine leader, and I give her huge volumes of grief for taking on CEO roles instead of sitting on ten different boards where she could have a huge impact on um, the culture across all those different businesses. Obviously, jokingly, but yeah, she. the, the I think those three, those two firms and, and Joe would be my the folks I, I, I'd point to. That's great.
1: Thinking about you personally as well, you've come through, you explained about the time at Tortilla where you work consecutively for 500 days. You know, you're out of the day-to-day running now, but you've still got lots on your plate. What gets you through pressurized times currently? What do you do to keep your mental health, your balance in life? Is there anything you can share with our listeners?
0: I think there's, so one thing is, once you go through enough of this, you do just kind of generally are able to handle the stresses and and, and there there isn't as much that's new um, and novel. And so I, I think just kind of, you know, going through the triathlon of of this whole thing makes you a bit hardened, not necessarily in in a negative way, but a bit just able to kind of handle it. You have some, some, some more answers. The challenge with hospitality generally is that it's, it's not so much that we're not solving rocket science. There isn't anything that's kind of intellectually really staggeringly hard. It's the relentlessness of the whole thing. As, as you know, it just keeps coming. It's just never ending. It's almost like a video game. It's just like, Tiny, tiny decisions, hundreds of times a day. And and that can really wear. And so, you know, so one is hiring the right team around you to take on those things and holding them accountable, which is something that, as I I mentioned, I probably didn't do as uh, good a job of. But then the thing that makes me feel that that I I think from a mindfulness standpoint and a decluttering is, and this is so boring, but I'm just absolutely relentless on a to-do list relentless. I just live and die by this thing. And and the reason it's so helpful, not not just keeping me organized, but instead of trying to organize things in my mind and compartmentalize, it's down on Evernote and it's just there. And I can leave it behind because I know that it in the you know first thing in the morning, it's there and I can kind of pick it up. Last thing at night, I make sure that everything's kind of organized and then I can just I can turn off from the thinking because You know, what really what happens is if you if you're thinking too much, you know, if you're trying to organize this in your mind, you're trying to go to sleep, you're not sleeping. And then it just kind of perpetuates itself. Right. And so, yeah, that's that's probably it's not really a trick. It's just I don't know. It's but that that works for me.
1: I I, I like that. There's just something you do feel you've emptied the file in your mind. if it's on the paper and that frees this file up to maybe do some more hopefully creative thinking or positive thinking or, or whatever. So I think that's a really good tip. Just coming to the end now, do you have in in any of the companies you, you're involved with, is there any preemptive well-being activities going on in these companies? So we read and hear a lot about burnout and increasing stress and Mental health, absenteeism at work, and rather than just waiting for those to happen, is there anything you're working on in your businesses that you're actually trying to keep people well by preempting, you know, their their well being?
0: I'd say with Tortilla, we've now gotten to a stage where the team has put in place pretty good measures to to take to, to handle those kind of things. I wouldn't say that there's The strongest of kind of proactive measures but certainly you you know the challenge at the beginning is that you just don't have the resources to be able to put in place these processes and structures and everything and that's where the staff need to understand that there's only so many hours in a day and you have a whole you know you have 10 years of process that you want to put in place and policy and structure that will enhance their lives not make it worse With Tortilla, you know, we're now at, I think it's 57, well, 47 owned stores and 10 franchise. And there's enough of a team around that they are putting in place an annual gathering, you know, kind of festival. They do have regular quarterly feedback that does get actioned. They have a newsletter that's going out. That that whole communication piece is really being dealt with. I don't I'm not close enough with it to know what's being done in terms of stress levels and hours worked and so forth. But I I know that a huge step in the right direction is just asking those questions and understanding if it's an issue and putting in place a plan and communicating it. And they're doing that, which is great. And as a result, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, approval ratings going up as well as staff staff retention going up but a lot more could be done you know as you said it's a computer game isn't it that
1: that constantly needs moves making making all the time and and i think what i've heard from the discussion today your belief is that bringing compassion bringing well-being into business it's definitely something that it's not just a nice to have it's actually going to have an effect on the the KPIs, the bottom line, the competitive advantage? Is, is that something
0: you agree with? Yeah. And to go back to your question of what is the biggest thing that I learned in life or in business, um, I hate to be just slightly crude on this, but I was out with a buddy of mine, Nick, this is in 2012. And we, we were having a bunch of beers at a pub near Leadenhall Market. And we just we were thinking about kind of corporate mantra and corporate ethos and corporate everything. And we came up with a very simple tagline. We just said, don't be a dick. That's literally the whole tagline. Don't be a dick. And actually what's interesting is there, there, there's there's actually like, there's t uh, t-shirts uh, that have that phrase. So I like, I bought some t-shirts and everything like that. And it was just to say, you know, not only we, we have a responsibility to all these stakeholders as a public, as a consumer focused uh, or, or consumer facing uh, entity. We have, we can't we need to make sure that health and safety is dealt with for millions of, of people who eat at our restaurants. We've got businesses that rely on us because, for, because we're paying the, their bills, because we're hiring them. We've got our investors. We've got our employees. We've got, there's a ton of people that each of these entities touches. Don't be a dick, you know, just be a nice person to these folks and understand that you're part of that community and that you have a responsibility to them. And so, you know, you were all taught, or, or old school business school teaches you, You know, it's about making a profit like that's and that that I've heard businesses tell us that. I mean, I've been there when managers are like, you know, that's all that matters. And they're wrong. You know, what what, what matters is that. And So I only had a couple of good grades of business school, like really good grades. And one was on a a thesis I wrote on corporate social responsibility, which said, you know, when asked about why why should you do good things? Because actually, we put in place capitalism in order to achieve a certain goal. We're supposed to be maximizing the utility of everybody, right? And, and the happiness factor and the well being. And if you're so, if we're losing sight of that and actually we're creating profits, that, but we're not actually bringing people along and making people's lives better, then it's because the system is flawed. In which case, we need to just adjust the system a little bit. We need to take it into control in order to make that happen. We don't just blindly follow capitalism, it's flawed. Just like communism, just like socialism, they're all flawed. It's just the best of the of a ba- bad lot, right? And so, from that standpoint, you're, we are all empowered to make that happen, and we know that it's going to do a, a, a world of good for the people that are involved, for all those stakeholders. So that's you know that's kind of my my approach.
1: Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. That, <laughs> did you get Did you get the tattoo as well? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Final question. If there was a single thing that could be done to create a more compassionate working world, what would that
0: thing be? Oh, well, let me, I I don't know exactly what I would do, but I know what I would address. So I don't have the solution, but I know what the problem is. And the problem is that you have a set of investors who have huge amounts of wealth who are in competition to to put mu- to allocate capital into businesses that achieve the highest returns. And the way to get the highest returns is to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze the costs. And so the result is that where you, if, if everybody said, so as a result, you have a, a, a standard thing in, in restaurants where you need to achieve a 35% return on capital in order to approve a story moving forward. If that was 25%, it would mean that it, that it, that we could bring down the hurdle rate, we, and we could actually have higher level of costs, which should go to labor, and you could actually pay people more. But because of the demands of the because it's such a top down approach, you're, we're basically being led by a private equity firm or investors who have an expectations on returns, which are only because we're in competition with a lot of other investments. That they and and so it is what it is. Like it is. It is. It. it we are exactly where you'd expect it to be, where we are driving down costs and being ruthless to employees and all we and all we can do as CEOs is to, is to play that game and feel good about it. Because at least if we are playing that game and we're not paying them the best wages, we're at least expanding the business and that's putting people in employment. And you kind of justify it to yourself that way that you're doing good for society, but it doesn't have to be this way. And I, and I suppose that would end up having to be some kind of tax or some kind of, you know, impact on investment that just brings that down. And I don't know. I'm not clever enough to know exactly where that solution is, but that's where it all is coming from.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's pretty clear. So that's uh, yeah, that's a great insight. OK, that's the end of my questions. If, if there's anything more you'd like to add or anything you'd like to, to leave us with, now's your time otherwise
0: it's been a feels like we've covered it all but it's been a pleasure to be with you and and good to chat through such an such an interesting topic and one that's not only timely but you know with everything going on with ESG and everything it's it's only heading in one direction thankfully